0: Thank you for listening to this talk produced by the Art Gallery of South Australia. So welcome to the, uh, the Samurai Exhibition and my name is Russell Kelty, the Associate Curator of Asian Art here at the Art Gallery of South Australia. And this is actually, I was wrong in our last talk. Uh, this will be the last talk for the Samurai Exhibition. The, the exhibition closes on Sunday and then we... Welcome to the next exhibition, which will be a vast emporium, which looks at trade and cultural interaction between Europe and Asia uh, from the 16th to 19th centuries, and that will open on May 1st. So, it's with a bit of sadness and a bit of anticipation that we say goodbye to the samurai this week, but it has been a very interesting exhibition for the gallery in many ways, and often with these displays, as my boss at the back can tell you, that usually you leave with more questions than answers, and this, the work that I'm going to speak about today is uh, a total anomaly in the history of Japanese art. And it's, it's kind of surprising and not surprising, as this has happened quite often to me and to James as well. We find that the Adelaide community and the works they collected, some of which are absolutely spectacular, you know, one-of-a-kind pieces in you know the world, and this is one of those pieces. This is titled the Archery Contest at Sanju Sangendo, Sanju Sangendo Toshia Zoo. It was created in 1750, probably in Kyoto or Edo, one of the big urban centers. And what it depicts is an archery contest which took place from roughly early 17th century all the way to 1855. Uh, daimyo, kind of regional lords would come and congregate at Sanjusangendo, which if any of you have been to Kyoto, you know well. It has these amazing images of the Bodhisattva canon, uh, 1001 images. It's absolutely astounding. Uh, it was created in the 12th century by a warlord known as Taira no Kiyomori, who really was the, kind of, uh, the archetypal villain of the tale of Heike, which you would have seen the screens earlier on in the display. And Sanjusangendo... Uh, temples in the Edo period, Edo period 1615 to 1868. It's a real flourishing, the arts, peaceful time in Japan, and the warrior you know, has to find a way to fit into this new regime. And one of the ways they did that was to continue to practice the arts of war, such as archery, swordsmanship, as well as the arts of peace, which is uh, on the other side, uh, such as haiku, poetry, things of this writing and so forth. And so the Toshia, from the early 17th century, would take place in the fourth or fifth month based on the lunar calendar. And all of these daimyo would get together their best archer, and they would either shoot 100, 1,000, or shoot arrows for a 12-hour period. And the whole point was to actually get as many arrows in the bullseye at the end of this 120-meter veranda on the west side of this temple. And if you look closely, you can see this this archer, in particular, has missed every one. So hopefully he continues uh, in a better fashion than which he started. Now, what's fascinating about this this contest is that it was, one, a way for samurai to get together, have a bit of fun, shoot some arrows, meet each other. It's a bit of a social gathering, if you will, of the samurai. Um, It was was also... uh, a way for them to uh, practice these arts which were no longer in use. Remember this was a peaceful period in Japan which the samurai fostered into existence for about 250 years and so they wanted to embrace their heritage while also embracing the current peace and prosperity. If you look closely at this image you can see the the archer at the bottom having his sleeve off uh, his bare chested as as you do and two assistants uh, beside him preparing his arrows He shoots along this this path, hits or doesn't hit the target. And what's fascinating is if you look at the path that the arrow will travel, it's actually textiles. It's a row of textiles, probably foreign textiles, Indian textiles, known as Sarasa in Japan. And Sarasa in Kyoto became so popular in the late 18th century, roughly around when this was created, that they actually created knockoff Sarasa for those who couldn't afford the real thing they could get a kind of facsimile of Sarasa. And they actually had design books, one of which is in the collection of the Archive of South Australia, from which dyers could actually create these things. So style was very important. And it's fascinating to me that the samurai have chosen this row of foreign textiles to kind of be a part of their key marquee event. If we look to the left-hand side, we can see the expensive seats, so to speak. Boxes and boxes of samurai seated together, uh, kind of chatting, having a bit of a whisper, maybe a bit of gossip, smoking a bit of tobacco. One samurai actually has what looks like his child. He kind of looks like a puppet, but it's his child seated in his lap. He's very dressed down. Other ones are kind of cavorting together. Maybe they're thinking about taking over the Tokugawa shogunate netto. Who knows what they're talking about, but they're having a good time. It's a nice day on the green. It's a beautiful day. There's Birds in the sky, pine trees over the top. And so it's a lovely day out, a lovely event. Now, some have speculated, since we have no information on this, there's no date, there's no artist, we can't fit it in with anybody in particular. Some have speculated that the patron is actually the person who is most dressed down, who could show up in an event of this prestige and actually not wear the vestments of a high-ranking daimyo. Uh, This older gentleman here, seated in the middle, may very well be the patron of the painting, and may also be somebody very specific in history, although we don't know. Now, if you look closely, you'll see that the samurai have their kind of chionmage, their cut pate, uh, their shaved pate, beautiful vestments, and then they're all wearing one sword. Now, this is interesting, because if you know anything about samurai, and if you look just back behind you, you can see the two swords, the long and the short, the katana and the wakizashi that were mandated, samurai were mandated to wear when they were actually on duty in Edo, in the capital. They probably are wearing just a long sword because the long sword would be hard to take out in a cramped space, whereas a short sword you could probably take out quickly and stab somebody. So this is, you know, recognition of their past and their kind of uh, penchant for military violence and, you know, just a bit of a safety for everybody involved because sometimes things got out of hand. Now, what's fascinating, even more fascinating than all of this, is the one European conception that's taking place here. And I'm sure you all know what it is altogether now. Perspective, one point linear perspective. Now, you remember this when you were kids in art class? You know, you, you picked a point on the horizon, and then you drew lines to, con- to end or combine at the end of that horizon. I, I wrote or drew many train tracks when I was a kid, you know, off into the horizon. And the artist has done a similar thing here. But if you look closely at the lines, they don't quite converge. And this is fascinating. So you may say to me, well, Rusty, why why would you buy a painting by somebody who wasn't even adept enough to actually make one point linear perspective work? And I would tell you that uh, somebody trying to integrate it imperfectly actually is more fascinating than than if they had achieved perfection. If you look at it more closely, you can see the capitals of what are supposed to be gigantic columns, wooden columns, are all kind of wonky. They're they're sitting upright. And then the columns themselves almost look like paper streamers instead of gigantic columns. If you look at the veranda itself, it would have been about 120 meters long. The the artist has kind of pulled it back. It's almost like a Picasso painting in the early 20s. The the, The picture plane is kind of pulling forward and a bit off. And so this artist obviously knows something about one point linear perspective, but hasn't quite worked out the details of it quite enough to make it perfect. And thus we have attributed it to mid 17, uh, 1750 or so. So this leads us with a bit of a complex story to tell. Now one other piece of this puzzle is that this may seem like a painting, but at one point it would have had two wooden feet on the bottom and it would have rested on the top of a tatami mat, possibly in a large hall of a mansion or maybe a brothel in the red light district. Now there's a bit of a problem with this as well because it would be, if you, this was something for decorative use, to kind of move around a room, to kind of partition a room, it's highly unlikely that you would want something this striking, this kind of eye-catching. Usually you add birds and flowers, plum blossoms, cherry blossoms, things like this. So. This is a rather strange work of art all around. And one other thing, it's hard to imagine that a samurai would have wanted this in their residence. Probably their residence wouldn't have been big enough, and it's highly unlikely that this would have been acceptable for a daimyo or even a shogun of a certain class and status. They would have had gold, they would have had tigers, they would have hawks and pine like you see behind you. And so this is a total mystery, this painting. The only thing we can ferret out is that it it represents this fascinating context in the mid-18th century when Japan was, which is often described as closed, is actually, uh, artists are integrating all these very intriguing ideas from Europe, from China, and also ideas of painting that had existed in Japan for about two centuries or so. And so for me, this is one of the more intriguing works because I don't know quite what it is. I know what it is, I can tell you it's a painting on paper, it's a suitate screen, but who painted it is a mystery, why they painted it is a mystery, and where it would have been used is a mystery. And so to understand this painting a bit more, we can kind of delve into the context of this mid-18th century, so that's what we'll do today. Uh, so if we look at the samurai, the samurai comes of age in the late 12th century, they rule Japan from that point forward, And it's only in the late 16th century, after a period of excessive warfare and famine and pestilence, that three great warlords, shogun, uh, bring and unify the country together. So you have Oda Nobunaga, who's the first major, what's called the three unifiers. You have Toyotomi Hideyoshi, and then you have the great uh, Tokugawa Ieyasu, who begets this great shogunate or bakufu, tent government, so to speak. And he, he, instead of going to Kyoto, the capital, the cultural capital of Japan, where the emperor is, 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 resides, he instead moves his capital to Edo on the eastern side of Japan. Now we know it as Tokyo. It's a fantastic urban space with 30 million densely packed people. And he establishes it there because it's outside of the imperial realm. It's a bit far away. It's where he's from, and he can, you know, rule from there as he wants to. Now what happens in the Edo period is that In the 1600s, the Portuguese who are are residing on the west coast of Japan in Nagasaki, they start to get up to a bit of mischief. These foreigners can cause some problems. And it's it's Christianity which is causing a lot of issues. Uh, And so they decide that they kick the Portuguese out. They bring the Dutch in to Nagasaki, to Dejima. And the Dutch are great because the Dutch You have to remember they're northern, they're Protestants, so they bring their goods and commodities from around the world, but not their gods, which is perfect for the shogunate. And the shogunate, you know, these great cities of Edo starts to blossom. Uh, Japan is is relatively peaceful. There's about 260 daimyo residing all over Japan. There's the center of Edo, where the shogunate hangs out. And like any proper dictator, he rules Japan in a dictatorial fashion. So he requires these samurai, uh, by law, to practice the arts of boo, or war, which you see in this, uh, this gallery, and also the arts of culture, which you see in the next gallery. Uh, he also requires a daimyo, kind of high-ranking samurai, to bring their retinues, to establish a retinue of about two thousand, two hundred to 2,000 Archers, swordsmen, pikesmen, so forth and so on, and to make, to travel all the way to Edo every two years and then back to their regions after that. They have to establish a mansion in Edo and they have to leave their family there as virtual hostages so that if they get up to any trouble or mischief out in the regions, you know, they always have their family there uh, as these hostages to to kind of uh, make sure they stay in line. This is actually a print uh, from 1840 depicting one, what's known as the Sang King Kotai, the kind of Alternate attendance in Edo, and Edo blossoms. It becomes this, what some people have, have uh, equated with the largest city in the world, about a million people by 1800. It dwarfs Paris and uh, Paris and London in terms of size. The uh, populace is exceptionally literate; they're about 90, eighty to ninety percent literacy rate. So, publishing matters. Things flow everywhere along these great highways that have been established by the the shogunate, and so. Uh, the, the archipelago, for the first time, is connected in a way it wasn't before. And why is this important? Well, because within these urban centers, it's not only the samurai who are living there, but also these new wealthy merchants, artisans, uh, who want to uh, portray their wealth and also want to have the latest interesting things. And one of the, the more interesting things that happened to come into Edo, Are ideas based on Dutch, what's called Dutch knowledge, or rangaku. And you may ask, what is rangaku? Well, as the Dutch were living in Dejima, Nagasaki, they, as well as the Chinese, were essentially the kind of portal to the outside world and brought Chinese silk, Indian cotton, Chinese ceramics, lots of different uh, culture as well. And while there was a ban on books from Europe, in 1720 the H H Shogun, actually relax those bands because he himself wanted to learn Dutch. He also wanted to learn about the outside world. So this idea that the shogunate cut Japan off from the world, Japan was isolated, is not necessarily 100% true. They were very interested in the outside world because they wanted to know who may show up on their doorstep at any one time and kind of uh, challenge their sovereignty of Japan, as would happen in the 1850s. And so he relax, relaxes these, this band, and so you start to see interesting things start to trickle trickle through Nagasaki, up the great highways to Edo and Kyoto and other places. Some of these books are related to astronomy. Some of these books are related to medical sciences, such as dissection, the human body anatomy. And some of these books are artistic treatises on things like one-point perspective, Italian painting, uh, Dutch painting, and so forth and so on. And in the 1770s, There are tiny social circles that start to appear in Edo, downtown Tokyo, who are fascinated with particularly medical history and anatomy. You have to remember at this time that Japanese understanding of the human body, Japanese understanding of the world was largely predicated upon Chinese understanding, Chinese medicine, which had, you know, dissection and investigating the human body was quite foreign. And so the Dutch created, obviously, manuals for dissecting the human body and anatomy. And they started to turn up in Edo and along with all these other treatises. And so these small groups of what are known as rangakusha, or people interested in Dutch learning, which was a catch-all for all of these distant European treatises and European ideas. Sometimes they're in Latin, sometimes they're in Italian. Uh, many different uh, types of things were turning up. They started to think a lot about these things, and they started to translate these ideas. Uh, and in 1771, a man named Sugita Gempaku a physician, took one of these treatises which he had bought from the Dutch envoy which had come to Edo to see the Shogun, and he went to see the dissection of a a female criminal, uh, which was totally clandestine, totally illegal. And from that, he gained this inspiration of the human body, the interior of the human body, and he decided to translate this, this treatise. And so in 1774, he did. Now, there were other people who were associated with these, with these medical scientists and people interested in astronomy, such as artists. And the artist, this, this idea of rangaku, this idea of a different way of perceiving the universe, the human body, had a profound effect on these artists. And one such artist was known as Shiba Kokan, or is known as Shiba Kokan. And he was so infatuated with uh, this Dutch way of viewing the world he actually set up a series of prescriptions about how people should draw, what they should draw, that were contrary to Japanese way of seeing the world and presenting uh, the world uh, prior to this. So, just for an example, if you look back at the scroll, hanging scroll by Yamamoto Byatsu, uh, the hawk and pine, which is one of those kind of classic images in East Asia, the beautiful, steadfast hawk on this gnarled pine with this beautiful waterfall flowing down. You can see that space is just barely represented. There's no real depth. This is, this is all about brush and ink, these beautiful brush uh, movements, different textures. But the depth is not there. And then contrast that with this painting. Quite a very distinct, different way of viewing the world. And so Kokan was fascinating. In the late 17th century, he started to think about European aesthetics and Japanese aesthetics. And, um, He actually was the first person to create uh, an an engraving in Japan in the late 1780s. And he said, as he writes, why is it that European painting differs from Japanese and Chinese painting?" someone asked. I replied, European paintings are executed in great detail, and it is attempted to make them uh, resemble exactly the objects portrayed so that they may be of some use. There are rules of painting to achieve this effect. They observe the division of sunlight into light and shade, and also what are called the rules of perspective. For example, if one wishes to depict a person's nose from the front, there is no way in Japanese painting to represent the central line of the nose. In the European style of painting, shading is used on the sides of the height of the nose. Again, if one wishes to to draw a sphere, there is no way to make the center appear to stand out in Japanese painting. But the Europeans shade the edges to permit one to see the height of the center. In Japan, this is called uki Since it is the custom in Europe to consider all, above all, whether something is of use to the nation, there is an academy which examines all books before they are printed so that no books of a frivolous or indecent nature will be published. This is talking about Japan. And this term, uki is actually really important. Uki means floating, and a means picture. And so in the 1770s, there was this huge fad in woodblock prints themselves, which are called ukiyo-e, Pictures of the Floating World, which is based on a a medieval Buddhist premise that we should all be very wary of or aware of our transience in the world, and that we should not take it for granted, much like a cherry blossom blooms, crumples up, falls to the earth, and then vanishes into the world. During this period, uh, there was a great joie de vivre about life. You should drink as much as you can, go to as many brothels as you can, have as much tea as you can, see all these wonderful things, and that was called uki- ukie, ukiyo, the floating world. And ukiyo is kind of a representation of this. So printmakers, painters to a certain extent, would create these pictures with depth, put them in boxes or in glasses, like a stereoscope, uh, and people were absolutely fascinated by them. This was a totally new way of seeing the world. Uh, and so this picture is representative of that kind of context in late, you know, late 18th century. So if you look at it closely, it represents this fantastic combination or confluence of different ideas. It has one point perspective. It has this fantastic Sarasa or Indian textiles, which would have been transported by the Dutch. It has probably more traditional, what you could consider traditional ascetics of Japanese pine and, sky and birds floating through it. And so it's not simply one or the other. It's a transitional piece, for lack of a better word. And so when I look at it, I see its imperfections, but much like a Japanese tea bowl, in its imperfection I see kind of a perfection of sorts. And I see a work that was created by an artist who is grappling by many different, with many different issues at the same time, trying to integrate the foreign with the domestic, trying to create a new vision for Japanese art, and I think that is quite spectacular. So when we acquired this in 2014, this was probably the first work that made me think, ah, well, we could do a samurai show, and it re- obviously represented this, this fantastic Toshia contest. Now, the Toshia contest ended in this form in 1855, but if you want to go today, you can still go see uh, a kind of aspect of this. It's called the O Taikai, and it takes place just after New Year's in our calendar system. And it's now, instead of for men and about men's business and men's time, it's actually about young women. So all of these very young, about 20, I think it's a coming of age ceremony, all of these young women dressed to the height in you know, fur and kimono uh, in this super-cold Kyoto uh, go to the omata taikai as a kind of representation of becoming an adult So if we can see this fantastic transition from, you know, samurai, uh, you know, daimyo seated having tobacco, and now young women kind of celebrating their, the passing of their youth, it's quite an intriguing transition and connection with the past that's still ongoing in Japan. Now there's one last thing I'll say about this before I uh, let you go, is while I was researching this, Sanju Sangendo, if any of you have been to Kyoto, Sanjusangendo is, is kind of an icon. You will have been there, uh, and it's on the tourist map. But interestingly enough, in the 17th and 18th century, Sanjusangendo was not only in Kyoto. There were also examples of this architecture in Edo and throughout Japan. So it's not signed, it's not dated. We actually can't say for certain that this is the Sanjusangendo that you see in Tokyo. The other Sanju Sangendo, the main one in uh, Edo, or Tokyo, uh, is, was at the Fukugawa, which was subsequently destroyed. And there's no, ev- there's no evidence other than woodblock prints, one of which, which is in our collection. So we can't say for certain that this was Kyoto or Edo, but we know the time period in which it was created, and this fantastic rendering of uh, one-point linear perspective. So with that, I'll leave you to wander through the Samurai exhibition and enjoy it for the last days while it's here. And, um, just realize you may not see a lot of these works for some time, so try to enjoy them as much as possible. And always remember that, you know, the art gallery's collection is very much a community collection. For example, many of those suba behind you or sword guards were acquired in the early 20th century by Sir Samuel Wei after his travels to Japan. The swords themselves were collected after the First War, uh, Second World War in 1950. And so the gallery's actually been collecting the, the arts and culture of the samurai or been an interest in the culture of the samurai for about 100 years or so. So, it's been an enduring interest, and we hope that it remains so. And um, we look forward to presenting this in another five or ten years, uh, the samurai. So, thank you very much for coming. Uh, if there are any questions, I'm happy to take them, but if not, Netsuke. So, the term Netsuke, oh, I think, it means it's not okimo, it means like kind of hanging thing. And so, Netsuke were created. Largely for what could be considered the lower class, but it's more complicated than that. And netsuke were kind of a, an adornment to go over your obi. So netsuke are very much a Japanese-conceived work of art for a very specific purpose. And yeah. And then in the 19th century, when Japan opens up to the world, uh, they become a de- decorative. Uh, device. So people are fascinated by Netscan, so they transition from being something to use over your OB to being something that you put on your shelf yeah. or you uh, enjoy as an art object. Right. So transition into how they're viewed, I think. Thank you. Any other questions? Yeah? Trust, trustee, in the uh, alternative attendance behind you, yeah. the Mon is there. Is very consistent, but that big blue and white flag in the center, what's going on there? This one? Yeah. Uh, that's a good question. I'm not sure. It's in the center of the prince, right? Yeah, they often flew different colors. Uh, you know, could be kind of consistent with these horizontal colors. Um, and maybe it has something to do with uh, what's known as a jimbaori, which are these hanging um, divisions for encampments of warriors. You can see it here, and you can also see it there. See those black poles? So it, maybe it's a cut from a jimbaori or some kind of ceremonial flag. I'm not quite sure. What you see around it are uh, mon or uh, crests of prominent fam- one prominent family. I think that's um, uh, that must be Tokugawa family because this is the 1840s would be my guess. So I'm not quite sure, but a banner of some sort, military banner. Any other questions? Great. Well, thank you very much. Enjoy.